0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario Premier Doug Ford is vowing to move up to 50% of surgical procedures out of hospitals and into private for-profit health facilities. Will his plan help or hurt the case here in Ontario? Ottawa approved an environmental assessment for a lithium mining project as Canada looks to grow its presence in the critical mineral space and shift towards cleaner energy. Moshe Landers, Senior Economics Lecturer from Concordia University, will join us to talk about that. And as the World Economic Forum opens up, conspiracy theories have been thriving again online. What does that entail? And what are the implications? Well, it's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're going to talk about the announcement yesterday from Ontario Premier Doug Ford, and... Uh, he talked about his uh, revisions, uh, shall we say, for the Ontario healthcare system. I, I don't think there's any argument uh, that, that we we're in our, almost in a crisis situation here with healthcare. Uh, and their solution to it is to bring in more private sector uh, healthcare, which is for profit healthcare. And that's got a lot of people upset and very concerned. Uh, according to the Premier, this is a, a three step plan to fix the healthcare system. And uh, they made the announcement yesterday that being the Premier and the uh, Minister of Health. Uh, And Ontario is actually looking to a more private sector to perform various procedures, such as cataract surgeries and various scans. But as Global's Matt Cardi tells us, the province isn't stopping there. The status quo is no longer acceptable.
1: Premier Doug Ford announcing today that the province is expanding private delivery of public health care. But the premier says it'll come at no
0: extra cost to you. Ontarians will always access health care with their OHIP card never their credit card.
1: Phase one of the plan is to add 14,000 cataract surgeries through private clinics in Windsor, Kitchener, and Ottawa, and then spend $18 million for procedures such as MRI and CT scans. Further steps include expanding the scope of these private clinics to include colonoscopies and then hip and knee replacements by next year. All our
0: government cares about is that you get the care you need quickly and safely. More surgeries, shorter wait times all paid for OHIP. Matt Carty, Global News. Well, that's uh, not the whole story, as we've heard over the last 24 hours or so. A number of people uh, that are in the front lines doing the healthcare delivery have some very serious concerns about the Ford plan. Uh, to talk about that, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. James And Dr. Teeson is the Director of Health Administration and Community Care and also an Associate Professor with the Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, doctor, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for making some time for us today. Thank you. Good morning, Bill. Uh, You and I have had these discussions in the past about how we're supposed to reform our system, how we're supposed to make it better. Uh, I I think many of us saw this coming. We just weren't sure to the extent that the Premier was going to go on this. What was your uh, read on what you heard yesterday, Doctor?
2: I think that what's being proposed is quite reasonable. Um, I don't think it changes the system that much. And as the Premier and the Minister have said, it will continue to be paid the, the um, procedures, and so on, will be paid for by the government. Um, the difference is that they'll be delivered through um, private clinics, um, just as family doctors have their own businesses
0: and deliver care to us. So this is, and, and I know this is a, a, a concern for an awful lot of people. Oh my God, they're bringing you know private uh, you know contributors into this thing. But as you say, family doctors have been doing that for years and years, and they, by definition, are exactly that. Uh, are you are you confident that as the premier and the health minister talked about yesterday, that we're actually going to see the a change, a positive change vis-à-vis wait times and, and efficiencies? It should help a little bit.
2: Um, These are the more routine uh, procedures um, that are standardized. And we should see some efficiencies um, that can be taken care of for these scheduled um, surgeries, particularly in these clinics. I don't see it as being a, um, a game changer, but it will certainly help.
0: Maybe just because I, I got a lot of emails with people more questions than answers, I guess at this stage, maybe you could uh, shed some light on some of these, Doctor. <laughs> Who actually works in these clinics? So these uh, most people assume that okay, if you're a, a surgeon of some kind, you're probably working in a hospital, not in a clinic. Is 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 it the same level of care? Is it the same level of expertise? Well, what will happen? What, what happens now is that the um,
2: physicians are paid for the perf- procedures that they perform themselves. That's through OHIP. Yeah. As well, hospitals get uh, facility fees, which they, as part of their block funding, to um, host a certain number of procedures a year. So, what will happen is that these um, clinics will get some facility fees in order to <clears throat> provide kind of, I guess you could call the infrastructure, um, so that these surgeries can occur in their clinics rather than hospitals. The doctors will be paid um, for the performing the
0: tasks. So in other words, the the income toward the, the doctor or the surgeon in this particular case, I guess, uh, that, that doesn't change. I mean, whether you perform it in a hospital or in a clinic, uh, the fee is the same, and that's how they're going to be compensated. That 's the way I understand it, yeah, okay, and there will be some government money going to the to those clinics themselves is that is that the way you see it too I, I think they would have to because you have to kind of support the
2: people around the surgery, be it the staff and the nurses and so on, because um, just right now the hospitals provide that um, Support for the procedures that the um, doctors, most who are independently um, run their own businesses, that they perform themselves.
0: Yeah, and we've talked about that in the past. I know everybody thinks our system is free, and that just means that you know everything is covered. But uh, doctors are small business people. I mean, they they rent the office, they buy that equipment. That's not given to them by the uh, the government. There's no freebies in healthcare either. Exactly, exactly. So,
2: um, this is, the intent is to, as I said, to move this more standardized stuff. Now, the hospitals, um, it looks like that they're going to go along with it, but, um, you know, they're a bit concerned about having those standardized, I wouldn't say easy, but uh, more predictable uh, procedures being performed outside their walls, and they're left with the more complex ones, which actually isn't a bad thing
0: talk to us about, about the facilities themselves. And this is another, I, I I'm just going kind of picking away at some of the questions that I, I got on email yesterday, uh, hoping that, uh, that somebody of your uh, caliber and, and stature could actually come and answer some of these things. Uh, if I, they're, they're talking about down the road, not right away, but down the road, even doing joint replacements in these, which, and, and I'm sure the, you know, the, they're capable of it. Certainly these are very capable people that work in these clinics. Uh, but invariably, you talk about, okay, where am I going to recover? Do they just ship me off at the end of the day and say, you know, good luck and, and that's it? Or uh, is, that's... are there facilities for people that, that may need an extra night or something like that? How, how does that system work? That's a great point.
2: I'm not sure yet, to be frank, Um, but you make a great point. Um, You know, cataracts and these other things, um, it's it's not as uh, much of an issue. But certainly for uh, knees and hips and so on, um, you'll have to make sure that the uh, community care to support rehab is established. So I think what might happen is some of these larger community care providers such as se health or bayshore they may get into this business themselves and they already know how to deliver uh, home care and the rehab so th- there might be some room for some innovation
0: well yeah and i i can relate to my own circumstances i've told our listeners many times i've had too many replacements over the years and uh, uh, I can tell you the day after the surgery or the day of the surgery, uh, I, I probably was not in very good shape to be able to go home. I ended up staying yes. a couple of days in the hospital after that, as did most of the people uh, in and around me who were having surgeries at the same time. There's a recovery period there. Yes. And, uh, you know, because as I think you and I have talked yes. about in the past, yes. things can happen. You can develop a, a, yes. a fever that, you know, it could be an infection. There's all sorts of things going on. Uh, if you have the surgery and bingo, bango, go home now and uh, and relax. Uh, there's nobody to monitor that. And I guess people wouldn't even be able to understand the symptoms to to know that something could go, could go wrong. Not always, but does sometimes. Yes. And and I, that, that's a great
2: point. And right now I don't know how they're going to work with that, but for safety's um, sake, I think they do like to keep you in the hospital for a day at least. It used to be a longer time, as you know. They try to yeah. get you out as soon as possible. But for these routine um, procedures on younger people, I think that um, they'll, they might be able to send them directly home. But it's a great question. I don't know how that's going to work.
0: Well – Quick point, I mean, I was listening to the football game on the weekend from Buffalo, the, the the broadcast, and one of the sponsors there, a couple of these clinics that are doing these sorts of things, and Navy placements, and you can go home the same day, and I said, yeah, I don't think so. I've mean, been there, done that, and uh, you're not usually in very good shape to do that, but again, we're, we're getting into the nuts and bolts of it, but you know, for the people that are going to be impacted by this, uh, they're going to want to know, I would guess, Dr that one of the possible solutions to what we were just talking about here uh, is gonna be home care. And and that's a, a yeah. an area of healthcare that really needs propping up at this time. Yeah, and, and this is a good move in that direction. The
2: more stuff that you can do in the community to keep people out of the hospitals, the better off the system is and the patients are. That's where we want to be. We don't want to be in hospitals. They're expensive. You can get sick in hospitals. So this is a good step, I think, in
0: moving more care out into the community. Let's talk about, let's circle back into the hospitals themselves. Uh, The Premier reiterated, as did uh, Minister Jones yesterday, uh, that for the you know, potential patients, there'll be no extra cost. Uh, the Upselling is going to be a concern, though, and, and that, I've heard stories even before the, the premium made the announcement yesterday uh, that that happens. That okay, this is what OHIP will cover, uh, but you know you can get a better grade of this. Uh, you know, it's a lens for for cataract surgery, anything else like that. Being offered choices. Uh, and, and that's going to cost extra. And and I know a number of people have, have expressed some concern about that. You know, am I getting the best quality service or am I getting, you know, the basic service and, and be expected to to dip into my pocket for anything else?
2: That, that certainly could happen. And that's a concern. I think the government is certainly alerted to that. This initiative is getting so much attention. Um, people will be on the alert for this and, and really go in with um, two eyes open, hopefully. So, so while it may happen, and some people may correctly want the, I'll say the up the upsold um, procedures, or um, you know they, they might want better care than the base baseline is. I don't think that's a terrible thing,
0: but they shouldn't be conned into it. No. Yeah. Well, and I know that part of the answer to that is is you know personal insurance, uh, but as we found out, not, an awful lot of people in this province don't have insurance plans uh, because of the affordability factor. So that's going to be a concern. What about the impact on the hospitals themselves, though, Doctor? Uh, you know, we already know uh, that in many instances, especially in ERs and 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 uh, other areas of the hospital, they're understaffed as it is. And some of the critics of the, of the, uh, the government plan are simply saying, look, it, th- that's money that should be going into the hospital, into our public health plan, you know, to help, you know, with, with salaries, to help with staffing and things of this nature, as opposed to helping the public clinics. Uh, is there going to be a, 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 a swing now? I mean, you know, as, and they also talked about the fact that they're going to open more clinics and they're going to help, you know, pay for the funding for that as well. Uh, are people going to leave the public system, leave the hospital and go work in clinics instead? That will probably happen to a degree. Um, The
2: procedures that we're talking about, certainly they're um, substantial and they matter. But, you know, the hospitals um, are going to be doing less of those things. Um, You're still going to need the same number of people, or actually you're probably going to need more because we do have a shortage. Um, The system's going to need more money. I don't, Certainly, people will leave the hospitals to a degree to these um, work in these facilities. The hours will probably be better because they're scheduled surgeries during mm-hmm. convenient hours. So that will be a concern for the hospitals. Um, it won't help um, emergencies and all that. Um, th- those shortages and those um, constraints. However, I it, we'll just have to adjust to it. I, I don't think it will have a huge effect on hospital staffing long run.
0: Uh, because the concern here is that there are only so many healthcare dollars and if the, and if they're spending it try to to get this system up and running and and to support it as they seem to indicate yesterday uh, that's money that's not going into public health and is is this move uh it I mean that's great for the nurses I mean they end better you know shift better hours and more money but is it weakening the healthcare system the public healthcare system it may, but I think that whatever we do, Bill, we're
2: going to be spending more money on health care. Mm-hmm. And the hospitals are at full capacity now already. Um, so if you can pull some of that out of the hospital, I don't see that as being a bad thing. Hopefully, the government will top up um, and continue to support the hospitals. But as I said earlier, and we agree, the more that can be done in the community, the better. The hospitals will probably be performing a role in accrediting some of these um surgeons for the more complex procedures that are done out in the community. So I think they've got enough to do.
0: Yeah, and I'd be a lot more comfortable, and I think a lot of people would be too, if if there were follow-up conversations and even follow-up announcements from the government about those support services, about home care and things of this nature. Uh, and And I'm hoping that's going to be forthcoming. Doctor, it's always great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning.
2: Thank you, Bill. And thank you for keeping these conversations on these
0: really important topics alive. Well, always glad to do it. Thank you again, Dr. Dr. James Thiessen from uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Economic news. Uh, Just yesterday, we were talking about electronic vehicles and uh, the the discussions uh, that went on with the three amigos last week in Mexico City and uh, also the discussions the Prime Minister had with the Japanese Prime Minister uh, just a couple of days ago about EVs and the raw materials for them. Well, yesterday, the Prime Minister uh, toured a rare earths element processing plant in Saskatoon. Uh, Lithium, graphite, nickel, cobalt, copper, and a group of 17 metals and minerals are being prioritized for investments in exploration. Uh, And that's good news for the uh, EV industry. Uh, Production and processing is part of Canada's critical mineral strategy. And the Prime Minister said the world is looking to Canada right now.
1: Canada has incredible amounts of
3: uh, the critical minerals and the rare earth elements that the world needs. But on top of just having the elements, we have uh, an incredibly strong workforce, uh,
1: well-educated, ambitious, innovative thinkers.
0: Uh, Interesting analogy, especially given, given what we talked about on the program yesterday about EVs. And I, I want to circle back to that in a couple of seconds, but uh, let's go with some more current news uh, with our next guest, first of all. And that, of course, is the inflation rate. We got new numbers on that just a, a little while ago. And uh, to talk about that and uh, the lithium and uh, the uh, uh, rare minerals, uh, Please to welcome uh, Moshe Lander. Moshe, of course, is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Moshe, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you back with us again. hello. Hello. Uh, let's let's go to the inflation numbers, first of all. It's down a little. Uh, it's not quite time to start popping champagne corks in celebration, though, is it?
3: Well, uh, maybe not champagne, but if you want to open a cheap bottle of wine, I think that it's maybe time for that, <laughs> right? 6.3% inflation is clearly still above the Bank of Canada's target, but... It's down from the 8% number that we were talking about in the middle of 2022. So uh, again, things are trending in the right direction. And it's important to remember that these interest rate increases take about 18 months to have an effect. So we still haven't seen the full impact of those early 2022 minuscule interest rate increases. The big whopping increases came in the middle of 2022. So we're still not going to see the full impact of that until the end of
0: this year. Oh, she give me some uh, some perspective on history here. Uh, we always seem to look at this as you know the day that uh, that you know the the pandemic was declared a pandemic, and we started changing the way we were doing business and the economy and lockdowns, etc. Uh, that's when all this started. Our, our inflation rate was creeping up a little bit before that, wasn't it?
3: It was. And if we had not had a pandemic, the Bank of Canada would probably have moved in 2021 by increasing interest rates to address it right then and there. They probably wouldn't have had to increase it as much as they have or are going to. Um, But uh, no, you're right. There there was inflation that was starting to appear. Uh, What the Bank of Canada did was they essentially sat out the pandemic uh, to give the economy time to Function on whatever level it was until we figured out how to work within the parameters of a pandemic. Once we saw that, okay, uh, there's vaccines, there's ways that we can social distance, mask and, and protect ourselves, work from home even, uh, then the Bank of Canada said, all right, we need to make up for lost time. And by that point, inflation had run a little bit too hot for anybody's liking. And that's why they had to move so aggressively to try and rein that back in. Worst thing that you want is people to think that oh, we've returned to 1980 style inflation, and therefore I need to ask for 1980 style wage increases.
0: Uh, there are factors, uh, as, as we saw from the the, the release today. Uh, you know, we know the price of gasoline has gone down, and it's inching back up here in Ontario again, uh, just over the last couple of days, I think it was around 133 a few days ago, and it's back up to about 145 uh, in the Hamilton area anyway. So, but it's fluctuating, but it's still a lot lower than it was a year ago. Food prices are still a, a problem here, though. What's happening?
3: So, it, th- this is this is the supply side, right? And And this yeah. is the one thing that Interest rates will not fix. Interest rates will easily rein in people's spending. Uh, when it's very expensive to borrow money, then you don't want to over-in-debt yourself. And in fact, you'd like to find a way to relieve that debt. And so that's spend less, save more. Simple as that. But interest rates are not going to fix what's going on in Ukraine. Interest rates are not going to fix global warming. Interest rates are not going to fix uh, hurricanes going up the Atlantic. Uh, or uh, torrential rains in BC, or uh, freak cold in Ontario. Right. So, uh, in this particular case, then a lot of what we're seeing at the grocery store is being driven by these supply side issues of just getting food from farm to to shelf. And there's there's nothing that interest rates uh, are going to be able to do about that. So it's a matter of businesses now trying to figure out how to reorient their supply chain. The the phrase of 2022. Um, And and once they figure out how to reorient that supply chain, uh, we'll we'll see a lot of this alleviated and and go back to just normal sorts of of food price inflation.
0: Uh, And of course, everything's tied in here, as we've talked about in the past. I mean, you know, interest rates are going up from the Bank of Canada. That's impacting mortgage rates for some people as a result, and that's an increase to the cost of living. But it was interesting looking at the numbers here that uh, the cost of living actually has declined 0.6%. Uh, from November till December. So uh, like I say, it may be a, a, a small victory, but it's a victory nonetheless, and it seems to indicate that we're moving in the right direction, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, there's no question that we're moving in the right direction in terms of those interest rate increases that we saw in 2022 are going to have an effect. There is no question about that. In fact, I think the last time that you and I spoke, right, we were talking about the risk of Canada having a recession. Right, That's the real fear, is that these interest rates are so aggressively rising that it's going to tip us into a recession. Uh, There's no question that this will suck the air out of the demand side of the economy. It's just a matter of, will the supply side be able to fix itself fast enough that this will save us from uh, from from you know an economic recession. but uh, no, it, it's certainly doing what it's supposed to. And the fact that we're seeing some of these numbers come out that suggest that there's small victories happening is partly because the the psychology of consumers and businesses and even governments is, hey, the Bank of Canada means business and you better get on board uh, because they're they're not slowing down for anybody.
0: Uh it's next week, I guess, sometime that uh, the Bank of Canada will make their next announcement uh, vis-a-vis interest rate hikes or, or not. Uh, I know there's an awful lot of pressure right now to say, hey, we're in, we're in the right direction. Just ease up on the gas there, Tiff. Uh, I, I got the impression from some of the comments he's made in the last couple of weeks that uh, that's not going to happen, Moshe.
3: No, um, the the recent job numbers suggested that Canada's economy is still moving along. It's not not doing great, but it's not at a recession point yet. It's not at a point where unemployment is rising. And so I think that what the Bank of Canada is going to see is that there's some capacity to absorb another interest rate increase. Now, the good news is that if they do move to increase interest rates next week, it's only – going to be 25 basis points, uh, which is much more in line with what the Bank of Canada normally does when they're trying to tweak uh, inflation. So I I would take that as a small victory. And and there is the possibility that they don't do anything in January, but that would just increase the chances that they're going to do something in March. Uh, One of those two meetings, you're going to see interest rates go up a little bit more.
0: Uh, very quickly about about the predictions, of course, for a recession, which some people say is inevitable. I, I, I'm not so sure if that's a, a, a slam dunk right now. Uh, but now they seem to be talking about, yeah, it's, it's probably going to happen, but now we're getting into a hard landing versus soft landing. What do you see?
3: Soft landing. I I, I don't envision that there's a hard landing coming here. Um, the, the fact is that in 2022, we were talking about all of these job vacancies and how businesses couldn't find enough people, uh, the reality is that if businesses are going to find that they need to slow down because of these higher interest rates, all they're going to do is just take that job wanted sign out of the window. I don't know that they're then going to turn around and look at their workforce and say, and you're fired. Um, they're having such a hard enough time finding people in the first place that I, I think they'd rather hold on to the people they have and maybe give them just menial tasks to do around the office uh, than fire them and have to worry about trying to find them on the other side of a recession, that's going to very much insulate then the economy from the hard landing that some people are, are predicting.
0: Uh, with Moshe Lander from uh, Concordia University, let me shift back to, to the announcement from the Prime Minister yesterday study with the lithium man in Saskatchewan. Uh, it was just the day before that, that that we had talked about the concern that the three amigos uh, had expressed or the other two amigos, I guess, to the Prime Minister. Uh, but yeah, you got that stuff in the ground, but it's not doing us any good in the ground. You're going to have to up your ante here if you want to get these things out of the ground and and marketable. Uh, I think he had the same conversation with the Japanese prime minister uh, just a couple of days after that. Uh, how does this announcement about about the, this project uh, in Saskatchewan, in Saskatoon specifically, uh, moving forward? Is it going to be the, the catalyst to get this whole industry going?
3: Yeah, and it, it's really necessary. If you take a look at the, the biggest producers of these rare earth elements – Tell me how uh, how well you'll sleep at night knowing that the biggest producer by far is China. And I say by far because they're almost 10 times the production of the second highest producer, which is Australia, which is really not going to help Canada much when it's on the other side of the world. Number three, Myanmar. Number four, Russia. Number five, Malaysia. Do you want to tie up your cell phone and electric cars industries to countries that have unstable political environments or uh, questionable records on human rights and democracy and freedom and... Uh, The the fact that the world might be able to recognize that, hey, we can get these rare earth elements for our cell phones, for our electric cars, and we can get them from nice old Canada, this is going to send the world to our door. And so the fact that we have it in such abundance, uh, it's going to put us within the top five producers very easily once we're fully up and running. And that's the type of thing then that this economy needs to, uh, especially in central Canada, to to give it maybe a a substitute for uh, oil and gas production. Uh, and to to make the the world feel a little bit safer as to where they're getting these key elements from,
0: but this is not going to be on the market next week. I mean, there's a, there's a time element here, isn't there? I mean, you have to get a certain uh, OKs. This has to be done. This are, are those international regulations, or is that made in Canada? Because if they're made in Canada, then they're malleable. If if not, we're just going to have to go through the process.
3: Yeah, I mean, they're mostly made in Canada, right? So wh- whenever you're going to deal with mining, uh, you're going to have to deal with the the local indigenous groups that are going to want to make sure that everything's being done in a way that respects their, their territorial rights. Uh, people that live in the area are going to want to make sure that, you know, this is not going to poison the groundwater or pollute the air. Uh, When the mining is done, are they going to leave it in a mess or are they going to put things back in a way that, uh, you know, Canadians value their nature and value their environment? And so uh, these are generally rules that are are locally made. Um, They are malleable, but I I don't know that uh, you're going to see that a lot of these groups are going to be flexible in terms of, well, we need this up in the next month, so let's forget the environment. Uh, But the fact is that... um, you know, we're not talking about a decade before this happens either. And the fact that uh, good news is coming itself might be really helpful for the rest of the world to realize that, okay, you maybe need to hold your nose for this particular contract. uh, But by the time that the next contract comes up, uh, Canada might be fully on board.
0: Yeah, it sounds uh, from the, the information we got yesterday that uh, vis-a-vis the Indigenous people, especially in Saskatchewan situation, uh, they seem to be on board with this. So those, those negotiations have already happened. Uh, Ontario's got a little ways to go now, but, but maybe this can serve as a template for it. I mean, because it, it's, it's, it's not a stumbling block, but it's a very, very important part of the, of the, the whole process here, isn't it? To make sure that everybody's on side.
3: Yeah, you you absolutely have to have buy-in. And, and, you know, this is one of the the things that we, we see in the oil and gas industry uh, where if you don't have full buy-in, uh, it's what causes conflicts. And so, you know, at an interprovincial level, most people in Alberta are pretty comfortable with the idea of the oil and gas industry. It's the backbone of of the economy. Uh, but you see that Quebecers, for example, are maybe not quite as on board because they're not necessarily seeing the economic benefits of oil and gas, but they're seeing the consequences of oil and gas. And so, you, you know, on a much more micro local level, yeah, you need to make sure that everybody's on board with this idea. And you're right, Ontario is going to watch carefully how things are negotiated in Saskatchewan, and they're going to say, all right, we maybe need to tweak it slightly for the, the local uh, idiosyncrasies, but beyond that, yeah, it's the template for anybody that wants to do uh, rare earth mining.
0: Uh, we, we can learn from the pipeline uh, situations that we had open BC over the last little while, can't we? I mean, you know, you talked about a rather ty- tight timeline to try to get this thing up and running. Uh, you don't want to be stalled by court injunctions and court cases and lawsuits at the like that, that can that really drag this whole thing out.
3: Yeah, um, the, the advantage here is that I don't think that we're going to see those types of hindrances because rare earths are, are not going to really be transported by pipeline, right? So yeah. um, I, I don't know that, you know, uh, we're, we're going to see highway blockades necessarily as a way to try and protest against this. So since for the most part, the mining is a local issue and then it's merely a transportation issue, I think as long as the transportation industry is showing that these rare earths are going to be shipped to, to ports uh, in a in a responsible way, then I, I don't think we're going to see that type of objection. And Of course, if you're using rail, uh, rail runs through all kinds of areas, uh, transporting um, not unsafe materials, but dangerous materials. And save for the occasional derailment here or there, which is just, I guess, the cost of doing business, as long as everybody's being responsible about it, that's just randomness more than neglect.
0: Yeah, and I, I got the sense from some of the discussions that have taken place already around the Ring of Fire, uh, it, the issue there seems to be how do you divide the pie? There's a lot of money to be made there, and, and, and we have to talk about exactly how the compensation is going to be dealt. with. So uh, it's 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 going to be a, a process that's going to have to be expedited, I guess, and we'll see how that goes. Moshe, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking some time for us today. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Moshe Landers, Senior Economics Lecturer at Concordia University. Uh, So uh, just to recap, inflation rates are down, uh, and that's good news. Uh, But it looks as if next week when the Bank of Canada makes their next announcement that we're going to get another rate hike. How do you feel about that? You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a a meeting going on, which has been happening for a number of years right now, and it, well, I was going to say used to be. I think it still is. It should be a very prestigious meeting. Uh, some of the world's wealthiest and most influential figures gather for the world economic forum, annual meeting and uh, sessions on climate change and, and others. Uh, but recently uh, this forum has been the target of an awful lot of conspiracy theorists. Uh, by the way, some of them political conspiracy theorists who, who just love to beat up on this. And, and there've been some wild accusations made about this and, uh, uh, it's 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 mind-boggling to read some of the opinions and some of the uh, the the myths and the, the misinformation that's been spread around about this. Uh, to get some context, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Marcus Kolga, director of disinfowatch.org, and also a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Marcus, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. This was just a, a pure and pure, a, a, a very strategic and oftentimes highly regarded. I mean, Prime Minister Harper actually spoke in front of this forum. He had such respect for it. And it's it's a feather in your cap if you can be asked to to be a part of this. And many world leaders uh, from different political stripes in different countries have attended this. Uh, why all of a sudden has it become the target for uh, for some of these crazy ideas and some of these crazy accusations?
1: Well, Bill, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, over the years, it's uh, provided a... Uh, a, an open uh, forum for world leaders, um, world uh, business leaders, uh, um, others—you know, civil society leaders—as well, and it's brought them together, and it's really allowed um, this—you know—global group to talk about some of the most serious challenges that we we face today um, in in society, and and it's always because it's um, the nature of it is that it's you know the quote unquote elite uh, go to Davos for this. Uh, event, including like I said um, you know the business elite from r- around the world um it's always been subject to um, accusations of conspiracies uh, by both the uh, extreme left and and extreme right populists, if you will, uh, on both sides. but these conspiracy theories uh, about uh, Davos about the world economic forum uh, really ramped up during Covid when um, those who attended were Accused of um, of having manufactured COVID, that uh, the the that the participants at the World Economic forum, forum were conspiring to use COVID to control world populations, that they were going to implement a mandatory digital ID to control um, their populations, and you know there, some of the more wild accusations were that uh, you know they were using COVID, that the vaccines were were actually filled, the the vials were filled with micro nano chips, if you will, that were being injected into people uh, in order to control them as well. And all of those sort of conspiracies really, um, you know, I think inspired the imaginations of people who would otherwise not believe them during COVID. And, uh, and certainly, you know, I think that, uh, you know, populists uh, on both the left and the right had a heyday during COVID. And so, unfortunately, those conspiracies have sort of started spinning out of control and uh, partisans on both the the political extremes are continuing to um, advance and amplify those narratives. And I should also mention that, um, you know, the Russian government, which we've, you know, the dis- their disinformation and propaganda, which you and I frequently talk about, mm-hmm. um, they sank their teeth into this during COVID as well. And have been amplifying those same conspiracies about the Western elite. Um, in fact, Vladimir Putin, during his annual address at his Valdai Club think tank uh, event earlier or last later last year, um, made uh, the global elite and those conspiracies a central theme of his three-hour speech. So you have these foreign actors promoting, um, you know, grassroots and uh, conspiracy theories and and all of that. Becomes very problematic because what it leads to is the long term erosion of trust in our democratic institutions uh, in, in our media our, our elected officials and such and um, and it breaks ultimately breaks down the cohesion within our society so you know you know it, when we look at the world economic forum yeah sure we, we may look at it as a playground for the world's world elite. But all of these conspiracy theories in the long term are detrimental to our democracy and have led to this polarization that we're unfortunately in today.
0: Well, I mean, the best way—well, uh, I should say probably the most effective way to underpin our, our institutions is to, is, is, you know, rob them of their uh, their, their, their credibility. And the, there's been a concerted effort. You'd expect it from Putin, uh, and but some of these other wacky ideas that have come out of here uh, are, are bad enough. And you and I have talked about these in the past. I guess what's uh, concerning is they they get uh, head back to Davos this time, though, uh, Marcus is. Uh, a lot of the stuff is seeping into what they call mainstream media now. It's not just yeah. some some you know kooky guys out in the fringe and yeah. Well, that's some website that only about five people read. Uh, when when these sorts of theories are substantiated by well people like on Fox News that are south of the border <laughs> uh, and yeah. politicians up in this country, uh, it in many people's minds gives the, those wacky ideas credibility and thought. Hey, maybe there is something to that.
1: Yeah, Bill. And that's the unfortunate part is that you have these. Um, sort of uh, morally corrupt individuals who are unfortunately involved in in far-right, far-left media and in politics who, um, you know, exploit these conspiracy theories um, for their own, um, you know, p- partisan advantage. And, you know, we're seeing that uh, with the, the World Economic Forum today. Um, there's a far well-known far-right platform who I, I won't necessarily, I don't want to name, uh, on the radio, but there is a Canadian far right platform who sent a number of journalists to uh, the World Economic Forum, and you can go online. You look at their, you know, the reporting that they have there, and it's all gotcha politics. You know, um, reporters are are claiming that uh, Swiss police are detaining people and checking IDs there. Um, you know, there's uh, they're uh, ganging up on on various uh, uh, officials and various. Uh, uh, members uh, of the of the forum who are uh, who are uh, there, and they're using the this sort of gotcha journalism to try and prove the fact that there are there is a conspiracy happening here, and you know I think that these whether it's uh, these uh, f- uh, fringe media outlets or as you mentioned you know Fox News uh Tucker Carlson for example um, you know these people are contributing to that the polariz- polarization the extreme polarization that we're seeing in society today and and I think the Canadians need to be aware that when they see or hear these sorts of stories that they you know, they they think about them a little bit more critically. They they look at what I mean. If these if they're promoting uh, conspiracies about the elite, they have to think about why somebody might be doing that, and um and they have to think about the truthfulness of some of these uh, these claims that are being made. But but you're absolutely right. Um the the unfortunate fact is that some of these conspiracy theories and these narratives are seeping into mainstream media. Um I think in Canada at least we're more or less protected. I think our mainstream media is. Is not nearly as as polarized as it is in in the United States, and we do have very professional journalists who, who uh, won't repeat those conspiracies. But th- again, there is that risk that they could uh, con- they s- could continue to seep into mainstream media and, uh, and further that polarization that we're seeing.
0: How do you get to the point? I don't, I'm getting into psychoanalysis here, Marcus. So maybe maybe <laughs> a, a bridge too far, but how people could actually embrace some of these things. I mean, Alex Jones was, is, is one of these people that we're talking about. Uh, he's the guy that said Sandy Hook never really happened. People, the kids didn't really get shot. It was all staged. Um, and, and people buy into something like that. There was another one. I'm sure you saw the story last year at the forum about, uh, that, uh, the Schwab organization was actually encouraging the decriminalization of, of, of pedophilia, sex with yeah. children and adults. Uh, and, and, you know, this is a, a companion piece to the one about the Clintons a couple of years ago in the States, that they were running a, a child slavery ring out of some pizzeria in Boston. I mean, they yeah. sound so outrageous, but it, it, what was that old lie that Hitler used back in the 1930s in Germany? The more outrageous the lie, the easier it is for people to grasp.
1: Yeah, I mean, it meshes into these, uh, these QAnon conspiracy theories that are yeah. that are emerged. And, you know, I think the hint, the, uh, the Clinton one that you mentioned is, you know, that, um, that also affects the, the, the World Economic Forum. I mean, the, the claim there was that the Clintons were harvesting children and, uh, extracting their blood, uh, to feed it to their, the, the global elite that, that support the Clintons. You know, I mean, it's, it's it's completely outrageous. If you saw a movie with that sort of plot line, you would laugh and turn it off. But um, but you're right. I mean, there are people uh, who believe believe these conspiracy theories. There are you know thousands, millions of people who feel like they're disenfranchised, and it's unfortunate because you have these uh, individuals, QAnon, uh, the QAnon um, uh, leaders, the those who have uh, created these websites, Four Chan, Eight Chan, that advance those. Uh, conspiracy theories, they're profiting from this. Um, And so uh, they know that there are thousands of people who, um, who are, you know, emotionally um, in such a position that they might uh, consider believing these conspiracy theories, and they exploit that. Uh, And so there, uh, you know, there's a handful of people who are making money off of this. And as I said earlier, there are, unfortunately, there are some Um, you know, uh, morally corrupt political leaders out there who are also exploiting this, they realize that um, certainly after COVID, uh, that a lot of Canadians, a lot of Americans, a lot of people in the Western world are very frustrated. Um, uh, A a lot of people have had, you know, experienced, you know, whether it's death in their family or, or financial troubles, and certainly with um, increasing infl- the inflationary crisis that we're in right now, um, emotions are running high. And so they're exploiting this. They're using these conspiracy theories um, to provide an explanation uh, for people who are feeling that frustration, um, giving them someone to blame. It's the elite who are to blame. It's government. It's the Trudeau government that is to blame. And certainly there is blame to go around. But uh, the way that it's presented in this sort of way—that uh, uh, you know, of the global elite, the you know, World Economic Forum, uh, our government—are trying to take advantage of Canadians and uh, citizens of the Western world—is is ridiculous. That's not that's not happening. They have their faults, but but certainly uh, they're not. The intent is not to uh, uh, create problems for for citizens, and so the, these um, these fringe actors take advantage of that, exploit that. And unfortunately, there are people who are susceptible to it. Uh, and so, you know, I think what we need to be doing is, as, you know, whether it's our government or our society, we need to recognize this. And we need to uh, d- deploy measures to make sure that, um, you know, future generations are not as susceptible to conspiracy theories and, and disinformation. That includes, you know, it, you know, teaching our children about this. Um, and, uh, and and taking care to take a whole society approach to further inoculate ourselves against this, and make sure that Canadians um, who are susceptible have the cognitive resources to critically assess the information that they're seeing, because I I, I don't think we've taken much care in that, and that's what's uh, opened up so many Canadians to to unfortunately believing some of these conspiracy theories.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the, you know, the nth evolution of the sky is falling, you know, the, the people running around like that. And and in the past, markets, you know, I, I guess some of us would think the best strategy was just ignore them. There's a little clique and they're not doing <laughs> anybody any harm. Yeah. They're just among themselves. But when it moves into the mainstream, I mean, I, I had about a three-hour drive up north and back uh, over the weekend. I must have passed at least eight or nine vehicles with the, the F. Trudeau signs in, in various places. Uh, and these are the kind of people that feed off this sort of stuff, you know, that that he's responsible for this, and he's responsible for the disease, and uh, all these sorts of things. The anti-vax movement—they're all seemingly tied together.
1: Yeah, no, they're they're very much tied together, and it's it's really unfortunate because I think they're probably otherwise very decent people um, who sort of lost themselves. Um, yeah. You know, the, anyone I find that who who flies one of these F Trudeau, whether it's F Trudeau, F Harper or F Pulley ever, it doesn't matter who it is. Um, the fact that you're, you know, flying th- that sort of a flag, um, and demonstrating your emotion like that. And, and, you know, quite frankly, these people, when you're flying a flag like that, you're, you're not going to engage in a respectful, reasonable, uh, conversation. And, and these are the people that we need to sort of take a very close look at. And, um, see if there's any you know way of saving them and bringing them back into reality and and into normal society it's and it's uh, it's really unfortunate but you're right you know uh, when i drive up north to uh, to our cottage as well um you know i'm seeing more and more of these flags uh, the the stickers on on bumpers so you know unfortunately sometimes most of the time they're on these pickup trucks but yeah. but uh, nonetheless the number is is certainly growing and that demonstrates that you know i think we need to take a much closer look at this because um, you know, we saw how this can, you know, eventually manifest itself. We saw what happened in Washington on January sixth, um, uh, twenty twenty. You know, we saw what happened in in uh, February of last year in Ottawa. You know, things could have been much worse, but um, but I don't think that's going to be um, you know, the last time we're going to see this. We saw what happened in Germany. Uh, the fact that the German government arrested over well over a hundred people. Uh, conspiracy theorists who had amassed guns and uh, and even a former member of the Bundestag, the, the German parliament was part of a group that was preparing to violently overthrow the German government. Um, you know, I think we need to be prepared for this. It is a, an actual threat to our democracy and we need to start to start taking better care to make sure that uh, we uh, protect ourselves against a, a potential event that will destabilize our democracy in the future.
0: Exactly. And and get rid of this notion that if we just ignore them they'll go away. Uh, that's not going to happen. Marcus, no. uh, thanks so much for this. I would always enjoy our conversations. Thanks for being part of the show today. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Bill. You betcha. Marcus Kolga, director of JustInfoWatch.org, uh, and a senior fellow, of course, of the McDonald's laurie Institute. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free